okay, you put a mask on their face and you want to make sure that even on dry land that they can breathe and it doesn't fog up. And right. you know, we had little we had little fans whirring in there a lot of the time just to to make sure that you didn't get that fog that you get on a mask just from breathing. This goes to the genius of you and your team, because I've interviewed a lot of costume <laughs> designers and not one of them has been responsible for someone not drowning. So. Okay, good. I'm glad. Oh, that makes me feel good. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Art of Costume Blogcast. I am your host, Spencer Williams, and thank you so much for joining me for another bonus episode. I am so excited to talk about today's special film. You might have heard of it. It's only the third highest grossing film of all time, Avatar The Way of Water. You guys know how much I love Avatar. I talk about it basically every episode. With that being said, I am so excited for you guys to meet today's guest. She is an icon, a legend, and was just honored with a Career Achievement Award at the Costume Designers Guild Awards. You are going to love her, costume designer Deborah Lynn Scott. She is amazing. I've gone to meet her quite a few times over the past, uh, I would say, month. But before we get into it, let's take care of our usual business. Let's start with the summary, shall we? 16 years after the Navi repelled the RDA invasion of Pandora, Jake Soli lives as chief of the Matakaya clan and raises a family with Natiri. To the Navi's dismay, the RDA returns to colonize Pandora as the earth is dying. After tragic events, Jake and his family exile themselves from the Matakaya and retreat to Pandora's eastern seaboard to find refuge with the Metakayina clan to learn the way of water. Now let's dive behind the wardrobe. We have director none other than the James Cameron and costumes designed by Deborah Scott. You know some of her work from, I don't know, maybe the first Avatar film, Titanic, for which she won an Oscar, Back to the Future, Minority Report, three Transformer films, Heat, and E.T., This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. So excited to introduce today's special guest, costume designer Deborah Lynn Scott. Welcome, Deborah. Thank you very much for having me. Pleasure. It's such an honor to be joined by you. Honestly, I'm a big nerd, so I'm going to try to keep the nerd levels to a medium today. <laughs> um, Nerds are the best kind. Right. You know, if you're invested, that's good. That's what but first, I have to. Con- there's. Plenty of congratulations in order. Not only were you nominated for a CDGA in the Excellence and Sci-Fi Fantasy Film category, it's also announced that you'll be honored at this year's awards with the Career Achievement Award. I mean, what's going through your head right now? 
Well, it's pretty amazing. I mean, you know, you don't think about it as you kind of go through a long career, but, and then all of a sudden you're like, oh my goodness, my peers are actually honoring me. And, you know, it's pretty, it's, that's probably the, aside from the fans who, you know, you're so gracious, grateful for um, liking your work, but to be recognized by your peers, I think is pretty wonderful. The nomination is pretty cool, you know, (laughs) hopefully we can squeak out a win, but it's a tough category. It's a very tough category this year. Lots of, lots of incredible costume design this past year. Yeah. Yeah. But for for you, it hasn't really just been a year. It's been a couple of years for this film in the right. process. Um, you've had such an incredible career between Back to Future, E.T., Titanic, the list goes on and on. But for me, I was 14 in 2009 when Avatar first came out, and I was getting my parents to take me every weekend. It was probably very annoying to them, making them sit <laughs> through this very long film. But I loved it. And it I feel like looking back on now, it kind of changed my life in a way. And it set me in a path to loving costume design. Maybe I didn't know it back then. Mm-hmm. Um, but that being said, it's now 2023. It's been a long time. How long have you been working on Avatar The Way of Water? I started, I think, in in 2018 okay. in the spring. Um, we, you know, we I sort of also because we were working on film two and three for the fans out there, you know, threes are coming. Okay. Definitely. <laughs> um, so we, you know, we kind of worked on them together for good reason. The story is a little bit continuous and there's a lot of the same elements of design in a way. You know, we get into some very new stuff in film three, but for Jim to shoot sort of as much in order as he could in terms of the whole comprehension of the whole story. That's why we did that. So it's been, you know, it was, I've been on hiatus for a little bit, but it was probably five and a half, six years for the two films combined for me. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. I, is that, really long. I imagine that must be kind of exhausting because most costume designers I talked to, you know, they were gone for a couple of months, maybe. I mean, this has been a big part of your yeah. life for a long time. Yeah. Yes, I think that's, you know, it's interesting to kind of go that long distance, you know, when you're sort of used to most of us, like you said, you work on a project, maybe six months, you know, that's, that's kind of long for a, for a film these days, but to stretch it out like that, we also kind of had COVID in the middle, you know, but the post-production, the post-production on a, on a, a movie, a virtual reality movie like this is, you know, with all that VFX work and stuff takes a, it takes a very long time. And I think to, to Jim's credit, because he's very invested in the costumes in the movie and didn't treat it like a design and go situation where you hear some drawings on paper and you guys, you artists at, at, at the digital house can take it from there. He kept me on through all of posts, not only because I was continuing my work on three, but because they needed to have someone to shepherd the process through the whole VFX process. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah, pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> you recently said in an interview of Slash Films, and I loved what you said, that uh, we are experiencing a brand new frontier for costume designers. And I couldn't agree more. Um, not just this film, but so many of the films that are, you know, popular at this moment. Mm-hmm. When it comes to films such as Avatar, uh, visual effects play a huge role so a lot of people are probably wondering, you know, what is the role like for a costume designer? Is the costume designer even essential in a film like this? And I would argue it's not even possible without a costume designer. And I know that you could probably speak to that. Yeah, I think it's extremely, obviously, in my opinion, extremely essential. And the reason being that 
because the public sees it in this kind of animated format, it, it doesn't mean that the same kind of work, and I think you can see by some of these pictures, the same kind of work went into creating the characters, creating the world, creating both of the two clans in this second film. So it's it's essential because who else is going to do that job, right? You have to have a head of department and a very, very important thing because we are basically the visual representations of these characters. And, you know, that lies with us. And it it's a very important part of creating a character. I, I designed the hair as well. and Which is mind-blowing. I, I did not know that until like last night. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a great thing. The great thing about that is because, you know, you always want to, when you conceive of a character, you always conceive of it with a, a head and a face. Right. So, you know, it's essential to be, to be able to do these drawings kind of head to toe and have the elements like you can see from this, this illustration of Kiri, it's not exactly like she looks in the movie, but it's pretty darn close in terms of her body and her hair. So the concept art for that really influences the, the digital artists, the costumes are meant to, like you could see on these other pictures, absolutely 100% real, just like you would do them in any live action movie and then sent through the process so that the costumes look, the, the goal being as a viewer, as an audience member, when you're looking at the characters, especially if you thank goodness, go to the theater and see it in a big format that they're so real because they are real. You're sitting in your seat and you can feel like you could almost reach out and touch them. Um, that's how dimensional they are. And that's why you can't accomplish a movie of this kind of grandness and, and importance to with simply a drawing. Right. I mean, I, I wish you could have heard the thoughts going through my head in the theaters. I was like, this all looks so real. Um, it's, <laughs> it's so convincingly beautiful. Oh, thank you. I mean, that, I mean, I think that's the, the that's why I think, to that this is a, a new frontier for costume designers. This is a new way to work. And I think people have been kind of working around it. I mean, certainly we did in the first, first avatar. Um, we didn't realize then how important it would be to do the costumes for real at the beginning. It became apparent through the, through the production. So when we started this, it was absolutely the mandate to do it right from beginning to end. And that's a, a lot of work with a lot of very talented people. Um, you know, I stand on the so shoulders of a, a tremendous amount of very talented artists, designers in their own right on paper, and certainly the makers who made the costumes. So then let's get into a little bit more of the technical side, a little bit more of the, the part that a lot of us are having a hard time trying to comprehend. Yeah. <laughs> so you're making these costumes and they're being scanned in what without maybe melting all yeah. of our brains <laughs> kindergarten right. version <laughs> right it's pretty simple design on paper okay if designs approved make the garments they they're made to human scale so that you can see in some of these pictures where the actors the one on the bottom left where cliff curtis is actually standing in a costume, right. you know, so that <laughs> I love the, that the, picture, by the way, <laughs> I know, it's, you know, it was, that was pretty early days, but we had a lot, a lot of pieces of the, that particular costume ready to go. And, you know, we did the wigs so that the actor's performances can be informed just like you would, if you were an actor getting a ball gun on, getting your hair done and walking onto a set for a scene, it's the same thing. So they only wear the performance capture suit when we're 
capturing their performances, but they need to understand the relationship that their clothes have to their body. So that's extremely important. And then that's kind of a different thing than the process of sending the garments, all the illustrations, every kind of piece of, you know, the puzzle that you have to the digital artists so they can start to recreate it on in the computer. Interesting. You know, in the simplest of terms, right? And then we kind of follow that process through to what I, I always call virtual fittings. Mm. They start a 3D model of the character in a particular garment. We go back and forth, you know, either on a, some kind of screen. Sometimes we could do, we did it in person. Sometimes we did it over Zoom, you know, sort of tailoring the costume to fit this nine foot tall blue person. Right. You have to go from human to, right, the, the, everything might change. So it's, right. a, it's a long process of not only virtual fitting, but then understanding how the garments move, what they're made out of. And that's where a lot of extensive testing of the garments come into play so that we can inform the animators and the simulators. So it's a big deal. There are a lot of people involved, obviously. Uh, yeah. I mean, and then we add the added challenge of most of this film taking place underwater. I mean, yeah. I don't, <laughs> honestly, I don't understand how you did it. It's incredible. I love seeing all the behind the scenes photos of the cast underwater. Um, yes, it did yeah. kind of look like that they did sometimes bring certain types of fabrics underwater, maybe to show the movement or costumes or the water. Exactly. Um, exactly. I feel like movement is a big role in this film and your your role in particular. Absolutely. The movement of a garment is always important in, in a movie that's going to be animated mostly. It's extremely important for the reasons I already said that, that they have to understand it. So and Jim is a, not only a big enthusiast of, of movement in costumes, but also proof of concept. So here we see um Kate Winslet wearing, you know, it was very difficult to understand how someone could walk. She's, you know, she's 30 feet down in this gigantic tank. Oh my gosh. Things, things change weight. You know, how do you get it to float and then not fly in her face or not fly up too high? All these, these sort of technical things that we have to do to make sure that the costume's right. And as well as making the performance capture suits, which you see, is this, they're basically the same thing that the performance capture suits that people might be familiar with on in a dry stage on dry land, but being underwater, this technology had never been used before. So while the technicians were developing the way to understand the movement, and even here you can see how they have markers on their feet because these characters are barefoot. So the articulation of what's happening in their hands and feet is extremely important. Um, and we had to, figure out how to take that technology and incorporate it into something that can be worn underwater. And that took about, that took about eight months because <laughs> it, never, it never been done before. And, you know, there were a, a lot of developments we did there and finally landed with this um, silver suit because you could really, you can see how clearly you can see the body move and things change color underwater. The, the bright yellow is very visible so that was a technical challenge in and of itself, which is brand new. And that's why I say for students of costume design that this is the, these are the skills and the things that are going to start leading you into a different form of the, the craft because you need to learn a lot of different things than you would if you were just doing a simple 
movie where two people are talking to each other, obviously. Right. We're going beyond sewing at this point. We're talking yeah, about and lighting and yes, know, gravity yeah. and physics. That's and, right. Oh, All sorts of things. And that challenge is is exhilarating. It's also a challenge. They don't call it that for, for no reason. And and that's why I think, you know, this as more movies, you know, more movies may not be made underwater, but they're certainly going to be made in this kind of virtual reality. And that's important for costume designers to start learning the new skills to have a seat at the table of these movies. Wow. Um, everyone listening knows I'm not often speechless on this podcast, but today I feel a little speechless. It's just such an overwhelming challenge. And I just, you know, I applaud you so much. It's really incredible. Uh, well, thank you. It is difficult when you've gone through the process to kind of be able to backtrack and break it down in simple forms. But, you know, just like anything, it is a process. And I was lucky enough to to be there and be able to do it, as well as the challenge of just trying to create these new characters in a new and you know fantastical place when you found out that a majority of this film takes place by or in an ocean were you excited nervous a little bit of both when you realized the amount of work that's going to be happening underwater oh yeah that was well you know you kind of just go okay that's <laughs> that's your that's your environment this time right you know it, you've you've shot in the desert you've shot in the forest you've shot in in very cold, very hot, very different kinds of situations for live action your whole career. And now you're getting this, this is a new thing. This is going to be a new, new challenge. Um, it does bring, it brought with it a lot of uh, kind of technical problems because we had to prove to Jim that the fibers and the things that we chose worked perfectly, like in his, what his mind what he wanted and what I wanted from the beauty of the clothing so that you weren't leaving these questions up to the animators. It's not animated movie, right? It's not. So you could draw it all day long if you wanted, but instead we proved that this is how it would work. Exactly. So, right. The tech, the technology and the physics and the real life informed the designs, the designs informed the, uh, those things too. So it was very, very back and forth. Right. Which kind of leads me to the next part. I would really like to talk about your research you did for this project. Because when we start, we see our characters in their forest home of the Matikaya, which, you know, we're all familiar with. We all love, by the way. But as tragedy strikes, the characters retreat to the protection of the Metakaina. I'd love to hear about your research process that informed the varying clans and the influences that you incorporated into the costumes. Well, it's, you know, the we had the first movie just sort of as a jumping off point for the Amatakaya. That, you, you know, there weren't nearly as many characters or as many costumes and um, certainly not as the children. So it's a big, it's much more expanded. So it was fun to have a, a place where we started and then to be able to take it in the directions that I wanted to, you know, sort of get it perhaps bolder, more interesting, show that, that, Nateri and Jake are now, you know, it's 13 years have passed, 14 years, they have children, all these things that would happen to a person, you know, and I think it's pretty common in a, in a sequel, right, that you're sort of taking that story and going forward with it. So I wanted to increase the uh, sort of the visual part of the, the costumes themselves. When developing the new clan, the Mekayina, they're, they're an, obviously a clan that lives on the water. I researched pretty much 
all and any indigenous peoples that live on or near the water all over the world. Interesting. Right. Off China, off India, the, the Arctic. It's amazing how many, you know, it's an, an it's an anthropological uh, deep dive, not to make a pun, but, you know, <laughs> you know, that's the other that thing. A good Right. Costume designers are so fun. Get the, the luxury and the, the fun of kind of going back to school. Right. OK, let's open up. We're opening up a whole new place. Let's what do we need to do? So we did that first. And and then I, I quickly you sort of you kind of make rules um, that are important to you. And one of the things that I discovered and I, you know, it's not rocket science, mm-hmm. but that people who live Indigenous peoples usually use their environment to help them create their clothing. That's where they get their end. They're usually highly decorative in some way. They might be incredibly minimal. Our characters aren't as minimal as many clans around the world. Um, their use of color, their use of the environment, their their structure within their clan. You see Renal and, and uh, Cliff Curtis and Kate Winslet here they're the the leaders of this particular clan. So they have, you can see by how much more minimal minimal the costumes in the background are, they're showing stature. He, with his big mantle on his neck, the color of his garment. Oh, I love that costume. (laughs) Yeah, you know who he is when he walks in, right? You're like, that guy's important. Right. It's important for an audience member to understand that as well as the, the body art. So we ended up settling on, you know, Jim was, Jim was more settled on the greater Polynesian area. So that became obvious where, because it's a warm climate and things like that, but it's amazing. Like I said, that you can find these through lines all over the world, no matter what the climate is. So that was really um, interesting to me and kind of gave me a path forward. And then, you know, I developed the color palette. I developed, and it was an absolute kind of joyride to just be set loose with design after design and kind of hone into it. At the same time, the thing that we're working hand in hand with that is you can make a beautiful drawing, but if you have to make the costume, there are other physical challenges to that. So deciding on the materials and the way these people are, they weave, they all the all the peoples on Pandora weave to some extent. These people are very accomplished. They're a much more peaceful kind of peoples. They have more leisure time. They're not at war. And, you know, so it was, you know, like I said, it's like, it's a joy to kind of create a fantastical world because you can go wherever you want with it. We would return sometimes to, you know, basic touchstones, but there's like the, the black piece that you see in the center, the black and blue piece is a, what we call a toa guard. And it's meant to signal their manhood in that clan, just like the cummerbund for the Amatakayan do for the men. Oh, interesting. There are things like that that are very structured and very well thought out. And then it's like, well, how how do we recommend, you know, uh, represent that? But the materials also in discovering how to make them really led to a lot of interesting, not only design challenges, but solutions. Interesting. Yeah, I've believe that the use of textiles was just so beautiful Uh, but there was like you said braided materials there was lots of use of shells i mean what was it like just working with a lot of these kind of what might seem like random materials (laughs) yeah (laughs) it's it it is kind of weirdly random huh but you but you know that it's again opening up your mind to what could it be 
their environment dictates that they have, they have, they use animals, they use hide, they use reptiles, they use birds, they use plants of all sorts. So you can, if you can kind of find it in the sort of fantastical pretend environment, you can use it. Interesting. So I always say it's like, right. So it's like there, are, and, and then shells that Jim always, always returns to the natural real world. Mm-hmm. Like those shells that, that we use are real shells. We tried to, the Nateri's bone collar on the left is, is the bone part of it is 3d printed okay, for, for obvious reasons, which in a weird, you know, <laughs> it's pretty hard. It was pretty hard to make that one. That one took a lot of, of trial and error. And oh, that's the one a beautiful my, piece. Yeah, I really, that's one of my favorite pieces because, because it was so difficult to make. We went through a lot of designs kind of in the same idea, but couldn't quite accomplish it in this, the way that I wanted, which was to make it sort of fearsome and strong, but delicate, very feminine, you know, yeah. but it does have that feeling of protection and, and a, a warrior kind of feel to it. You know, I'm going around and around, but the, the use of the natural world, natural textiles to create the colors and the, uh, Weaving, I mean, the leather, there's so many things that come into play. Yeah, that leads me to my next question, too, because I, I felt like color played such a huge role in this film. Uh, color really, to me, you know, translate to emotion. Yeah. Um, it really brings you into the world. How did you use color in this film, in the costumes? Well, I kind of stuck with this concept of forest and water, ocean. The Amatakai in which are they're more colorful in their in their way. And my color palette that I used was really based on the power shell for one thing, because it, it has a million colors. And then if you've ever picked up a very kind of shined up abalone shell, you see blues, greens. I mean, it's amazing. It was a challenge for the tech, the uh, the tech people, the VFX people to get all that life that you see with your eyes in this sample. And the second thing I used was the, the colors of the of a mostly sunrise, but mostly sunset on a beach, because their their natural world surrounds them constantly, and that's where you get the, these beautiful oranges and the yellows and the peaches and the pinks, and and you don't really see any harsh reds or and browns. A browns kind of a base. That's the sort of neutral. So you'll you will see some of that, but it's really the idea of what takes what kind of animals and plants and, and everything that that would be on Pandora. I love that. I mean, I honestly is one of my favorite parts of this film was just seeing all the textiles working with all the beautiful colors, the color palettes. It just, it was almost kind of like calming and soothing in a way oh, as good. costumes do. Yeah. Oh, good. Well, I'm glad you felt that way. I mean, that's, you want to, you know, obviously we try to reach our, our audience. Yeah. And you want to have them feel what you felt when you're creating it and get the, the, all that drama and emotion that you can get from a, an article of clothing. So with all that being said, you've designed all these beautiful costumes, so much color, so much textiles, but a lot of us tend to forget that you also had to do all the costumes for the live action world too. We have all these soldiers. Um, we have Edie Falco as this really cool general showing up. And honestly, she was a little bit fashionable too. So what was it like designing that these live action costumes? Well, you know, we, we sort of forget about that because it's not the fun part, right? It's very technical. Right. There's, there's, but we had to, we had to do all of the, 
we did again, top to toe, all the helmets, you know, there's helicopter, there's different kinds of flying, you know, apparatus that we had to make sure. And again, you're touching back to what reality looks like. Jim doesn't like science fiction. It would have been very easy to go complete sci-fi on that stuff. That wasn't the format in the first film, and it wasn't going to be the format in the second one. We also had um, my associate designer for the live action portion in New Zealand, Bob Buck, helped me a lot with the medical world, which again is very reminiscent of film one, but we take it even farther, right? The materials are really interesting. And then there's a lot of the just the technical things of the breathing mass and all that fell under the costume department purview, which was different and and really fun. And the, the, the dive masks, you know, they had to wow. actually work, you know, you're going to, if you're, if your dive mask doesn't work, no matter how pretty it looks, <laughs> it goes down there, it's got to work. So we worked with some really talented John Garvin. He was a dive master. That's interesting. I, I would never have yeah. thought that you were in charge of the mask. Yeah. Um, because we had to, we had to figure out how to get it made, but how to make it look right. So that was, that was, I'm sure incredibly expensive, quite frankly, but (laughs) you know, they're saving people's lives. So that's, that's a pretty important thing, but Jim likes to kind of call it that I, that I use two parts of my two halves of my brain. We had two production designers, one who just did kind of the earthly, what I would call the live action portion, that human part. And one who did the fantasy world. I did both. So it was constantly like running back and forth and trying to keep those two parts of the movie very different from each other as well. And I, I appreciate, I think it's interesting that we kept the live action, you know, soldiers, military, whatnot, a little bit more, I guess, more what we kind of know in real life, because right. then it really allows the Navi to really kind of really blow you away with their costumes, high contrasting colors and textiles. So I put them together with the live action people, you really know who's who and kind of helps you take sides a little bit too. Um, yeah. you know. <laughs> that, that's, that's very astute of you because I think the concept that the, the real world is more uh, real to us fans and audience members watching the movie. And again, that, you know, Jim doesn't like science fiction that much. He, you know, they could have easily gone crazy, but he wanted them to feel real to people. And then we had to also transfer those live action costumes to Stephen Lang and his group of merry men that are, you know, also nine foot tall and blue. So that was fun. That was a, a different kind of challenge because you're also trying to represent colors and fabrics in a much different way with the VFX. So it was, it was a lot, it was a lot to do. We did all the props and it was a lot of work for a lot of people. And I think a lot of people, the detail. Yeah. And the detail, the amount of time we had, the, the detail that we had to go into and were allowed to was, was fascinating, really just learning things like, you know, how to keep someone (laughs) from drowning underwater perhaps, or (laughs) you put a mask on their face and you want to make sure that even on dry land that they can breathe and it doesn't fog up and Right. You know, we had little, we had little fans whirring in there a lot of the time just to to make sure that you didn't get that fog that you get on a mask just from breathing. This goes to the genius of you and your team because I've interviewed a lot of costume designers. <laughs> not one of them has been responsible for someone not drowning. So. <laughs> okay, good. I'm glad. Oh, that makes me feel good. Service to humanity. Right. 
Um, so I've listened to a few interviews with the incredibly phenomenal cast, and I heard Sigourney Weaver and specifically Kate Winslet uh, mention that one of the first times they saw their character was through illustrations. And Kate actually mentioned through the costume design process specifically. Um, so I was wondering to what the collaboration was like between you and the cast and if there was one. Oh, very much so. I mean, the, it's it's different because, again, you're not dressing them every day to go out on a on a set. But that information that a costume gives a, an actor is so important. And and in turn, because you're shooting performance capture, you can watch the character also unfold in a way that you don't normally get to do in a live action movie specifically. So, you know, they would, when, for instance, when Kate was cast, she came and the first thing Jim would show her artwork, this is who you are, this is our world. People knew that they were gonna be blue and they were gonna be tall because <laughs> again, we had that right. temp from the first film, but all the different things that went into it. And then we would show show them pieces, like actual, like here's the, the neck piece that she wears with the, you see the shell. So she could touch it, look at it, and absorb this concept and then absorb. Also, I think ta being tactile was something is so important. And we didn't want to lose that as part of the process just because they were never going to wear their costume for performance. But they have and to keep in mind that they are wearing it, though. That's right. <laughs> and so sometimes we give them stage pieces that replicate the costumes without um, when you that one shot where you see uh, Sam wearing that kind of turquoise, crazy looking thing. Right. <laughs> that's, a, that's a stage piece that would act like his poncho and yet had enough open space so that the markers of the performance suit weren't occluded. Oh, wow. That's interesting because wind's blowing against him. He has to feel the poncho kind of moving across his body. Exactly. Exactly. So the the interface, what a normal actor would do, if your hair is flying in your eyes, you'd go like, you know, you'd brush it back. Right. They have to learn to do the same thing. So we would put wig pieces on them, especially wow. underwater, so that if your hair fell, you could move it out of the way. You can't make that up. That's real. So... You know, different <laughs> people needed different amounts of kind of reminders of their costumes. The kids, we we spent two or three days with the children in costume, jumping around, just getting used to the idea. Because for them, they're very young actors. They don't have the necessarily the ability to hold it in their brains. That's so fascinating. Uh, with the 25th anniversary of Titanic arriving, it's only fitting that we talk about your collaboration with James Cameron. Uh, was that partnership been like between you and James on, you know, not just Titanic, but also Avatar? I mean, this relationship's now gone on for a little while. So how do you guys work together? Well, we, we've, we've reached a really, you know, we know how to have a, you have to have a dialogue with your director. You have to have sort of an understanding of what it is that they're going to ask of you. Um, especially before you start a project, but certainly you learn more about that as you go along with someone. And our career sort of has taken, you know, our time together has been in different chunks of time over 20, 25 years. So you learn the, you learn the level at which, you know, Jim works at an extremely high level, very precise, very demanding. And so, you know, when you say yes, that that's how you're going to be allowed to work and and asked to work. So with the support of him and the producers and, and all that, um, 
she's it's the same on Titanic. We what he would say when we had a conversation, uh, an interview we did together. He said that we both really like a challenge, which I thought was a really good way of saying yeah, That's an understatement, but okay. <laughs> right. So he, know, he knows he's creating a giant challenge and he wants to find the people around him that can, that can go along, that are willing to take that, that, uh, that, that, that on, you know, it's a big deal. So I thought that that felt like a really big compliment to me, you know, that I wasn't going to be afraid. Yeah. <laughs> I'm obsessed with this. Um, so final question, I believe the way water has and will have in a profound impact on film, costume, visual effects, acting. I mean, the list goes on and on and hopefully inspires real positive change and compassion for the environment and our world. Um, that being said, this experience has been a long one for you. But now that you're kind of on the other side of it for at least a <laughs> second film, what did this film and experience mean to you personally and professionally? Well, professionally, it means a, a, a huge amount. The, the the breaking new ground, the challenge of that is immense and wonderful. You know, it constantly keeps your, your brain and your creative sense stimulated. Um, personally, it was, it was, you know, it was kind of like retreating into a, fa- well, it was exactly like retreating into a fantasy world where you could just let your ideas kind of go. And instead of being, I love doing period pieces. I love doing Titanic. It's very precise again, right? But you're following research, research, research. In this, you have, we had that, but then beyond that was where's your mind going to take you? Where's your creative sense and spirit going to take you? So it's very rare to have an experience like this, you know, there's not that many movies. There seems to be more now with the, with this sort of visual effects world and things like that, but to be able to just walk through an amazing different door and let my mind go and let my creative inklings do what they wanted. And then, (laughs) and then learn how to harness it down to like, okay, well, what are you actually going to do here? You know, you can have every wild thought we had. I think we probably did 10,000 drawings. And eventually you have to like, it's this and this and this, and then make it. So the making was really fulfilling. It was very, very fun to work with my crew at what a workshop people are very able with their hands to make things still. They're incredible. It's, it's incredible. It's, it's so gratifying. It's so fun to work together with a, with a group of people like that and sort of discover a new world. It's it's incredible. And only, you know, I think what's so cool about it too is only so many people have had this experience of working in that sort of, you know, Pandora fantasy world. So it's a, it's incredible. And I am so honored to have gone to speak with you, Deborah. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, oh, I can't you. wait till the next time. Hopefully it's not, you know, another 13 years, but hopefully it will a little be. bit sooner. <laughs> it will be. It'll be a couple of years and it's going to be a delight. There are two new clans we're introducing that are wildly different than these two. Wow. And and I think it'll be a real treat for the senses. I can't wait. Let's let's book the date now for when we could talk next. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Call me back in two years and we'll we'll continue on. <laughs> thank you so much, Deborah. Oh, thank you. Thanks so much for your time. The Art of Costume Blogcast is hosted and produced by Elizabeth Joy Glass and Spencer Williams. 
Our audio engineering and editing is done by Dan White. Follow us on Instagram at the Art of Costume Pod or visit the Art of Costume Blogcast.com for all blogcast updates. If you want to support the show, go to the Art of slash podstore. For more costume reviews, deep dives, and interviews, head over to theartofcostume.com, a blog dedicated to highlighting the best in costume design. 